found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, if you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please help us out by subscribing to the show and also by leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and can leave a rating. Also, we invite you to join us on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. All right, before we get started today, I want to put the formal call out to all listeners to take part in our podcast, which will be the Listener's Season 8 Review Show. It won't be next week. It'll be the week after that. I have an interview for next week, um, which we'll get to next week. But uh, then what we're going to do is we're just going to take your emails and your thoughts. Uh, You can also leave a voicemail. You can send us a direct message on Facebook or Twitter about what you thought of Season 8. You know, and even on what you'd like to see in Season 9. I really do think that it's important to get sort of the viewer's perspective here, the show fan's perspective here. And uh, hopefully, if the folks in Prometheus are smart, they'll take a listen and they get an idea of what their audience actually thinks about all this. So send those messages in, digginoakisland at gmail.com or go to at digginoakisland on Facebook or Twitter and you'll find us on there. All right, it's time to now go to your emails and messages for this week. Let's start with our friend Jesse who writes, Rick's last moment of this year are very emotional and very true. He was right about it being very emotional. He is summing up what we all feel. Not only was he lucky enough to participate in this, but we were too. He gave credit to everyone. He made a speech that should be heard. He gave credit to ones who came before us and people who gave their lives and ones who are working on it now. Also grateful for all who are working on now. Damn, that was a powerful speech. I teared up when I heard it. If you didn't, you don't have a soul. <laughs> P.S. I'm sure you've had hundreds of emails about it, but the face you were talking about was seen on Mars, not the moon. I absolutely love science and cringed a little when you said the face was on the moon. (laughs) Come on now, Jesse. I'm fairly certain I said Mars or the moon. I mean, I had one of them right there. I don't get any credit for that at all. I mean, of all the places in the universe, I narrowed it down to two. One of them was right. Come on, a little credit. I mentioned Rick's little emotional moment last week, but another thought occurred to me about it this week while I was thinking about it. Listen, people all over the internet are so sure they know what is really going on here. They are certain this is all faked, right? That the team is hiding the real evidence. That's my favorite one, by the way, that this was all just a money grab and on and on and on they go about how they found this already and they just, they're keeping it to us. Uh, even though they have nothing that even comes close to concrete about you know their supposed certainties here, either way, they are sure that somewhere, somehow, this show is insincere and is taking us all for a ride. Well, if Rick didn't prove his sincerity last week about all this to you in that scene, then he never can, and nobody ever can, no matter what they say or do. I understand the editors and producers are here to make money and to make a television show, and that's it. But I am convinced, not only by his words and his actions, but also by the many, many people that I know who have met the man, who have worked with him, um, that Rick would be there digging whether the TV cameras were there or not. I think if you were um, to wrap him up in one of those uh, Wonder Woman lassos of truth, 
He would tell you he considers the television cameras a necessary evil with the goal of expanding the search as uh, as wide and as well-funded as possible, that he kind of needs the cameras there to do that, and it's been a good thing. But I think you can be pretty sure, you know, he'd be doing this whether Prometheus was there with their cameramen or not. Thanks, Jesse. Looking forward to your uh, season eight thoughts. Don't forget to get those in. Okay, here's an email from a listener named Stephen who says, Hi, Dave. Whenever I get tired of Robert Clotworthy's hyperbole, I watch a couple episodes of Ancient Aliens. Compared to his work on that show, his narration on Oak Island is a masterclass in restraint and realism. Please feel free to pass this tip on to your other listeners. Thanks, Stephen. Stephen, if I don't correct the record here, I'll be getting yelled at from many a fan telling me that it is indeed not clot-worthy, but yet the writers who are to blame for this. It's not clot-worthy's hyperbole. The hyperbole belongs to the writers from Prometheus, Prometheus, who not only are in love with the Knights Templar, but are also convinced Samuel Ball was the John D. Rockefeller of 19th century Nova Scotia, and also weirdly, don't seem to have a dictionary to look up what the word ancient really means. Stephen, your point is 100% correct, but I think as a group... Right, We need to start taking the blame off of Clotworthy, who is a voice actor. That's all he is. He's reading a script. And put that onto the people who deserve it, who are the authors. When you see a, um, you know, there's a difference. If you don't like Clotworthy's performance, that's one thing. Um, If you don't like the way he's saying something or the inflections he uses, that's one thing. But if you don't like the words coming out of his mouth, that's on the writer. The same can be said about plays, right? I mean... (laughs) Whoever it is that writes that nonsense is this person that needs to be blamed, not the guy who reads it. Anyway, thank you, Stephen. Let's go now to John, who writes, Dave, I'm a Diggin' Oak Island fan and a fellow guitar player. Since the season is over, just wanted to tell you and your listeners about another archaeological show that reminded me a lot of the season of Oak Island. It's called Time Team. You can find it on Prime Video or on YouTube. If you like archaeology, this is a must-watch. Uh, Thanks very much for that tip. Time Team was an old British show that ran for, God, 20 years or something. (laughs) It was hosted by the actor Tony Robinson, who is a, how do I say, a real mainstay in British television and has been for decades and decades. It was basically a show about archaeology, and it it really was a great show and real fun if you're into that kind of stuff. So as John says, look it up. Uh, and enjoy. It might be a, a good way to get through the off seasons. <laughs> uh, John, thanks for reminding me of that one. I, I really I haven't watched it in a long time, and I've already rewatched a couple episodes here. Okay, let's go now to a theory on an email form from Corey, who writes, Hi, Dave. I have a theory that ties the artifacts and foundation discovery the team found in northeastern part of the swamp this year. The building foundations uncovered by the archaeologists in that area was likely that of a potter shop. The building foundation had evidence of a significant burn area in one of the corners, which would be a logical location for the placement of a pottery kiln. The hot and sustained fires needed to glaze pottery would explain the archaeologist's finding of oxidized dirt. I believe that the quote-unquote wooden T-square found within the same area was most likely a potter's tool for shaping the inside of clay pots. In my opinion, a tool made of wood wouldn't be the preferred material for the use of stonemasonry, especially when it would be more reliable and accurate and durable to have have it made by a blacksmith. Plus, there are images of a potter using a wooden tool which uh, very closely resembles this T-square on the internet. The collection of various pottery pieces found within a relatively small area would most likely be from a dump site used by the potter. If I was a person living in the 17th, 18th, or 19th centuries 
who didn't have the means or ability to regularly replace dinnerware cook or cooking pottery, or if a family heirloom piece that had been passed down for a few generations was accidentally cracked or broken, I would likely find the nearest potter to ask if they could repair it. If it was a potter that was unable to fix the item and the individual didn't want it back, I would likely throw it into a junk pile kept behind my shop. Unfortunately, this theory doesn't advance or rule out any of the Oak Island treasure theories. The program didn't show any artifacts found within the foundation to date it, and I don't know of any records that indicate any of the known residents being a potter. But that doesn't preclude any of the recorded residents or their family members from having a hobby pottery shop on their property. Additionally, any large workforce housed housed on the island before the modern era would likely need a resident potter to make sure the workers have the tools and dinnerware needed to keep them fed. Fantastic work on the podcast. Keep it up, Corey. Corey, I love this email. I feel like we're having our own sort of virtual war room crackpot session here. Not, not, not that I think you're a crackpot, Corey. That's not what I meant at all. And I think this is a perfectly plausible theory. I mean... Listen, it's certainly a much more plausible theory than the Knights Templar or, France, or Francis Bacon writing Shakespeare, you know. Um, I know that maybe sounds like a low bar, but I think you get what I'm saying. I think this makes perfect sense, and it would and shouldn't be surprise anyone should it turn out to be correct. But the first thing that comes to my mind when I read this is this is exactly what the archaeologist should be looking into and researching. I know personally, just from meeting him, that if Laird Niven was leading up the work in the swamp, uh, he would have. I would have all the confidence in the world that he would be doing exactly this kind of research. We seem to have evidence of this. Let's look into it and see if maybe somebody did do these things here. Maybe somebody who lived here did do pottery or fixed pottery or something to that effect. Now, I know less about Aaron Taylor and Miriam Emerald, and I know less about kind of their involvement with the show. I know why Laird is there and his sort of independent nature of how he's working. I don't know if that's true for Aaron Taylor or Miriam Emerald, uh, so I really can't say for sure, so I'm not going to make a mention on that. Um, anyway, you get my point. Great email, Corey. Thank you so much. Let's go now to Marilee, who writes, Hi, Dave. When I consider the positive things that I discovered while being in isolation over the pandemic, Diggin' Oak Island is at the top of that list. Oh, thank you. The podcast made it possible for me to feel part of a community even while I was stuck inside my house. I look forward to going back to listen to earlier episodes that I missed. Also, I love your guitar bumpers. Our bumpers, merely. Let me interrupt here and say those guitar bumpers, as you're referring to them, are actually bits of songs from my latest record, Around the Rock. It's available on CD now, but you have to contact me um, if you want one because it's not like I sell them on, on Amazon or anything like that. Uh, shameless plug thank you for that anyway Merrily continues as we struggle with the reality of having no Curse of Oak Island episodes for the next several months I want to mention one book to your subscribers that helped me get through the last hiatus as I'm sure you know Oak Island Obsession by Lee Lamb describes the real lives and the harsh reality of living on that island because Lee's mother, Mildred Restall, recorded her days and experiences during those difficult years. Lee was able to give us a glimpse into the hardship and the sometimes magical days on the island we have all grown to love. Thank you, Dave, for your commitment to Oak Island fans. I look forward to a summer of new podcasts to keep us thinking and researching merrily. Again, thank you for such kind words and for writing in merrily. Um, folks, you really should take her advice. Uh, I get asked this a lot. What book should I read? Um, you know, what should I look at, and what, how, what, where should I begin? Of all the Oak Island books I've read, Lee Lamb's book is probably the most readable. You know, and certainly the most emotionally arresting. Um, Robert and Mildred Restall, the 
the parents of Lee Lam were fascinating people, and it's just amazing what that family went through on Oak Island. It really is. It's incredible what them and their kids went through. Um, and you really get a picture of not only the tragedy of what it was like there, but the drive of this whole family and the the father's drive and his son and, and, and you know, as the word she uses, the obsession. Um, it really is an eye-opening. It may not, you know, you'll get some history of Oak Island out of, out of it, but you'll really get to understand the mind frame, the mindset of the per- people who were here digging on this island. And it really kind of informs the Laginas a little bit too. So I, I do recommend that. Thank you again, Marilee. Um, and thank you not only for your kind words about the show, but for giving me a chance to plug Lee Lamb's book again. It's a fantastic uh, uh, and heartbreaking read, really. Okay, let's go to Scott. Scott sent me a direct message on Facebook and says, Dave, thanks for the continued insight uh, being provided by you, your new co-host, Jock. <laughs> Shout out, Jock. And all the other listeners, as I watched the finale, I had a few questions and comments. Maybe this question is simple for other viewers from north Can- the, from the north of Canada, but is there anything that is done to protect the integrity of archaeological sites, specifically Samuel Ball's home site and the Swamp Road, during the winter through the snowpack in order to be able to resume work next year? Uh, okay, so he's got a couple of questions. Let me interrupt here. Scott, I only know one man who can answer that question for us. His name is Laird Niven. So I sent him your question, and he said that, quote, we did reinforce the ball foundation because it would have been compromised by removing the boulders. And then when I asked him um, in general about winterizing a site, so to speak, he said, quote, that's usually not necessary. So there you go. Um, They finish their work. They probably pack it up for the winter and maybe even do some work during the winter when weather permits and uh, when it's covered in snow, obviously not. And um, then they just pick it back up as soon as they can. Makes all the sense in the world. Anyway, Scott continues. Was it just me or in the final war room scene as the team discussed their optimism about the 2020 season and the results of, quote unquote, guaranteeing a treasure? Did it seem that Liz Michaels... And to a lesser degree, Aaron Taylor had extremely skeptical looks on their face as they listened to the last comments. And lastly, although there were statements regarding future work and the Big big Dig still being a potential future option, the final comments from Rick and Marty seemed to have a tone of finality. I know that in past podcasts you've mentioned that there will be more seasons. However, the emotional nature of the Laginas and the team, the comments related to the current work helping someone else get to the truth in the future, etc., made me wonder if this was the setting this this was setting the stage for a potential end of all exploratory efforts by this team. Do you have any insight into the future of the Laginas on Oak Island, either with or without the TV show, Scott? Thank you for the email, Scott. I generally do my best um, not to read, just to answer that first part, not to read anything into those quick kind of shots of the characters and the cast. Uh, for one thing, the editors really do chop these scenes up so much, um, and you just can't get a real read on what even they're reacting to. It's just a, you know, editor got this, you know, they, they put the camera on Liz Michaels probably for hours while they're shooting this scene, and then they pick one 15-second shot of her, even less, three-second shot of her, and put that in there. So I, I don't worry about that stuff. I don't know that you can read anything into it. As far as Season 9, there will be a Season 9 of The Curse of Oak Island. Prometheus and the History Channel have not officially confirmed it yet, which is their want to do. They do this every single year, but it is happening. Um if I'm wrong about that, I'll be the first one to apologize, but I don't believe I'm wrong about that. Um, again, 
we should expect their uh, confirmation in the not too distant future. Let's go now to our friend Steve, not the Stephen we read earlier today, but this is Stephen Ohio who writes quite a bit. Thank you very much for all of those, Steve. He writes this week, uh, Dave, it seems that based on the archaeological evidence in the last eight years, discovered in the last eight years, there's a latter half of the 1700s time frame at work here. In last night's finale episode, Rick Lagina called it, quote unquote, the British story. As nearly as I can piece together, all of these things were built in the 1760s through the 1780s. The U-shaped structure through dendrodating, the L-shaped structure also through dendrodating, the paved road based on the age of the artifacts they're finding upon and around it, and the large, uh, and the small and large wharf near the Samuel Ball property. I'm sure your astute listeners can add or correct that list and fill in the blanks. I believe the island was partitioned and settlers were moving onto the island the same time period, the 1760s through 1780s. My recollection is that Samuel Ball moved to the island around 1787. One would therefore imagine that Oak Island was a hopping place uh, in the later half of the 18th century. It wasn't a mysterious and uninhabited island. So, the town I live in was founded in 1815. And I moved here in 1996, 181 years later. Despite the long lapse in time, I'm modestly, though not entirely, aware of the town's history, who founded it, where old buildings used to be, some of the lore. That's nearly two centuries later. If Ball moved to the island in 1787, there's no way he was oblivious to what had been going on there in the 1760s. If Vaughn, McGinnis, and Smith went to the island in 1795, there's no way they were unaware of what was going on there 25 years earlier. Their fathers and grandfathers would have been telling them stories. A number of wharfs sticking out all over the island would have been uh, conspicuous and no secret, as would have been big sailing ships tied to them. Mysterious lights drew the boys to the island, more like farmers and British soldiers. Just wanted to throw this thought process out there. Only so much secrecy is possible, and even today, from what I've seen in photos, you could sit on the mainland shore and get a good sense of activity on the island. I have a hard time believing the locals around 1795 didn't have at least a fundamental understanding of what had been going on on Oak Island in the 1760s and 1770s, especially given the time and effort required to build what's being found. Thanks, and looking forward to the summer podcast episodes, Steve. Steve, honestly... I couldn't say it better myself. Of course, if there was a huge wharf sticking out of Oak Island in the late 18th century, there is literally no way it can go completely and totally forgotten about. More likely, it first of all probably wasn't all that big, but more likely, it really wasn't all that unusual or really wasn't all that interesting. So therefore, it wasn't thought about by the locals and the people surrounding the island as being anything to remember or to tell about. It's the Maritimes. It's the North Atlantic coast. There are wharves everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> I mean, it's just, just the way it is. Um, you know, Oak Island was surveyed and divided and sold off in like, I think 1762, if my memory serves. Uh, by the time we get to the discovery of the money pit in 1795, the island had been literally owned and farmed by various people for 30 years. This is an extremely important thing to keep in mind as these dates and the discoveries kind of emerge here. Just because it predates 1795 does not by any means tell us that this something is totally unexplainable that it's on the island. It's not. 
There were people there in the late 1700s, in the second half of the 1700s, and maybe even before then, although I don't get too far down that road because there's some skepticism in that. But anyway, be that as it may. Now, what they should be doing is taking these mid-18th century dates and researching the hell out of them to discover what exactly was going on with the island and the surrounding towns, what these places were actually like, what people were doing, what 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 was this all about? That's what they should be looking into because they're finding a time frame where I understand recorded history is sketchy, but it's there and we could look into it and we could get an idea. Uh, honestly, I'm not going to hold my breath waiting for that episode of The Curse of Oak Island, I'll be honest. you know, Steve, let me say this too. I get asked a lot uh, why I give so much air and credence to sort of the skeptical view of Oak Island. And next week's episode, boy, we're going to really give some air to that. Well, here is exactly why. The first thing I ever really dove into was the discovery story, the story of the discovery of the money pit. And this tale has multiple holes in it big enough for Billy Gerhardt to drive an excavator through. So, you know, it's hard not to look into this and then start to question what could all this be. And then once you start going down that road, you know, that's a long, dark road to skepticism. Great email, my friend. Thank you again. So great to hear from you. Um, Let's go now to another friend of the show, Ginger, who says, Dave, I'm positive now that there is a tunnel in the swamp. I'm pretty sure based on several theories presented by rewatching season seven with what I now know, I'm positive. I've heard you say before that you don't believe that concept. Watch season seven, episodes one and two again. Open mind. It's there. 100% sure. (laughs) Not sure what the treasure is yet, but there's definitely a tunnel in the swamp. I think the tunnel may be showing its surface outline as what they are calling the ship-shaped anomaly. The thought that it's a ship is just what the brain does with shapes. We want to define things by what we are familiar with as well as what we expect and want to see. The road is at the top or the bottom of the tunnel, which makes sense for a tunnel entrance. Looking forward, very forward to the completion of the swamp, Ginger. Ginger, I absolutely love your confidence in this idea. I also love your non-skeptical look at this after we've just talked about skepticism here. Um, I don't think I would say I don't believe in the possibility. Uh, I, I don't know that I've even kind of given it more of a thought because I don't see a lot there. It just seems a little unlikely to me. And let me tell you why. Um, First of all, I'm not at all convinced, despite what the narrator says, that the swamp is indeed man-made. Yes, I mean, there's obviously some evidence that it might have been at least manipulated by man in some way. We know it was when they built the road across it. Um, of course, there are rising ocean levels over the centuries that all have had, a, have had an impact. So we could be talking about man's involvement in areas of the swamp that were not part of the swamp when it was involved because the ocean was much lower. Um, you know, but there is also plenty of evidence to say that it's not man-made. I mean, it's just off the top of my head, including the fact that many such features, such swamp features, exist on islands all over that area. Just just look around. At the very least, the swamp is partially natural, I would say. We know that for sure. So with that in mind, all the places to tunnel under on the island, this seems like this one would be the worst and most difficult to do just because of the integrity of the ground in that kind of area. But Ginger... I'm a podcaster, not a geologist or a swamp doctor. And let's face it, uh, you know, 
the guys are on it now, and we're going to see what's there. They're all in here, so let's see what they come up with. And if they do put that cofferdam in that they're talking about next year, we're going to really get some answers about a big chunk of the swamp. Thank you again for reaching out, Ginger. It's always great to hear from you. Don't forget, we need your thoughts on Season 8, and you're looking forward to thoughts for Season 9 for an upcoming episode. So send those in to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. You can also send in a voicemail to that email address if you prefer, and I can try my best to get it to play on the uh, on the, on the the podcast here, whatever you guys um prefer to do you can also send us a direct message on facebook and twitter just go to the search bar put in at digging oak island and uh, when we come back we're going to talk about the latest episode of drilling down okay so what we want to do this week is discuss this sort of post-season show, so to speak. The season eight wrap-up episode of Drilling Down, which aired um, this past Tuesday. And it's something that they seem to do a lot of now, right? They, they kind of give us a, a winter interview, uh, post-season, pre-season, just uh, with Matty Blake. Um, and in the last couple of times, it's been in Michigan, Traverse City, Michigan. And here he is uh, sitting around a table with Rick, Marty, Craig, Alex, uh, Lagina, and Jack Begley. They begin by talking about how much of an impact COVID had on and the, all the restrictions had on the search. And they actually kind of take a positive look towards it. M- Marty actually says, quote, we might have been overextended before COVID. And what he meant by that is that... Um, the restrictions sort of shrank the scope of the search as far as who can be on the island and what kind of gear and allowed them to focus sort of more archaeologically on a couple of different places um, and kind of focus their attention. He's calling that a good thing. It's hard to tell if it's a good thing. I mean, uh, they didn't find a treasure, so who knows? (laughs) You know, Uh, the first segment of the show focused a lot on the finds, some of them being... um, pretty funny, uh, like the gold knob, which is, I mean, they still kind of pass this off as some sort of treasure find. It's just a gold-plated knob for probably a chest of drawers. Um, I also point the weight, you know, that little weight they found from uh, last week. I think it was last week. That kind of stuff. You know what I mean. But it isn't too long before we're talking about the water testing um, done by the the Swamp Doctor Ian Spooner and uh, Dr. Matt Lukeman. and how these tests showed the possibility of silver in the money pit area. Marty says, quote, this is the first thing we found that is a direct indicator of treasure, end quote. And he's right about that. In past years, we've had um, centuries past, we've had little bits of gold come up on a drill bit. Um, we've had parchment come up on a drill bit. But all in all, <laughs> over the 225-year history of the Oak Island treasure hunt, in quotes, um, there hasn't been a lot that points to there being actually a treasure. There's been a lot of things pointing to something weird, a lot of things pointing to possibly something down what the money pit is, or you know what I'm getting at, but not a lot of verification that what it actually is is a treasure. The whole idea of a treasure and there being treasure down there, meaning money, is that it comes from the idea of a pirate treasure, you know, and how pirates were indeed the uh, sort of the the 
what everybody assumed this was. Uh, so now we kind of hold, we, we've, we've taken the pirates away, but we've held on to the idea that it must be a treasure down there. Um, they keep calling this test result a find. They do that a lot. Maddie says that a lot. And I, I just kind of can't help but pointing out because I'm pedantic, I guess, that it's not a find. They didn't find anything. They uncovered evidence of something, but they didn't actually find it yet. We don't know what it's evidence of. Uh, it could be evidence of something natural going on. We don't know, but we know that it's, uh, but to call it a find makes it sound like they actually pulled a piece of silver out. Now, Matty Blake is doing his usual bursting with excitement routine, um, but I couldn't really help be reminded of the episode that they did just like this from this, probably the same room uh, where they had the um, seismic data, seismic uh, testing results and everybody was so super stoked about the swamp having a ship in it. You know, um, this there is so far to go down this road of what this evidence of the silver suggests that to sit here now and pat yourself on the back that you've found a treasure is just the same as sitting here, sitting in that room a couple of years ago and patting yourself on the back that you had found a ship in the swamp. We just, we're not there yet. You know, we're just not there yet. Um, next, they discuss this boot heel piece that you found, which dates from the 15th to the to the 17th centuries. You just get a quick piece of this and how interesting that was. And it is interesting because that is a strange time frame. Um, but they quickly return to the money pit. And Matty Blake asks, quote, is it time for a big dig? And Craig gives an interesting response here. He says that since they don't seem to have a handle, after all this time, they still don't seem to have a handle on where the money pit is or where it might have gone. He says that they are, and he says this definitively, quote, unquote, absolutely not <laughs> ready for a big dig at this point. So essentially... We will go through next season having two years of talking about possibly doing a big dig and not doing it, right? So they start talking about some of the other crazy technology they can bring in. And Rick is talking about bringing in this tunnel boring machine um, to go down under to bore a tunnel through the under area of the money pit. Um this is like actually something they make tunnels with, you know, like the Lincoln Tunnel. <laughs> this is like, this is a huge project and a gigantic piece of equipment. And I don't know how many of them are just easily found. I mean, it's, it's if that if they do go that route, boy, oh boy, what a what an interesting idea. Um, I don't know. Mar <laughs> Marty then kind of goes to another thought. He says something that intrigued me. He he said he would like to take a look more closely uh, at 10x again to maybe fix up 10X. This was Dan Blankenship's, uh, really his big project. Maybe fix it up because it was made out of old railroad tank cars and they've decayed and they're going to have to do some work in it. And it's But it's big enough to get a diver down there and he would like to kind of fix this up and actually get a diver down there. Now that now we're talking. That, that'd be interesting and I think that's something they can actually do. Um, and they also talk about bringing in some interesting ideas for new technology to find what the silver is or what it might be, where it might be coming from, what its source is for the testing results they get, kind of better examine the money pit. Um, and they, they include making use of 10x in order to do that. Now, after the commercial break, they come back talking about the swamp. And they point out how the dating in the swamp uh, seems to span across many centuries. And I say this all the time. We need to kind of look at these artifacts 
We need someone somewhere to say, okay, this artifact means this, this means this. This is where this this area, this part of history is where we're getting the most or the most intriguing, the most compelling, whatever it is. We need to zero in on that and we need to research the heck out of that area to find out what this could be all about. The idea that we keep getting these things for centuries, across centuries, just makes it all the more difficult to imagine that something could have happened here. You know, there isn't one event that puts something on the island or where evidence could be found off over a millennium. It's just, it's just not possible, you know? Uh, and to make matters worse in this regard, Craig tells us that they actually tested the piece of wood that everybody thought was from a ship's railing. You remember this? We're in the swamp. It's raining. Um, uh, Charles, not, not Charles Barkhouse. Doug Kroll is sitting next to Billy Gerhardt in the excavator. And he pulls out two pieces of wood, which they never, did the rest of it looking into this is, has to do with the coffer dam that they want to do down there. Um, well, they found these pieces of wood. They were definitely looked finished. They looked like they were off of some sort of piece of furniture or I mean, it could be off a ship as well. They called it ships railing. It could be railing for a house. It could be a lot of different things, but they tested it. And he, uh, Craig actually says they tested it twice and the wood dates 660 to 770 AD. I mean, you got to be kidding me. What does that mean? I mean, uh, it's hard for me to believe it, right? The time frame you're talking about here, it's very hard for me to believe that that is either accurate or represents when this piece was being used by people. Uh, I'm very skeptical on this. I'm not skeptical on the results. I don't think Craig is lying to us about what the test dating is. But I'd be interesting to see if we hear more about this, if we look into this more. Uh especially if they put this coffer dam up and find even more pieces of this. Do you remember what I'm talking about? This was this unfinished piece of wood. Uh, anyway, Marty then says here, kind of to go along with what I'm just saying here, quote, are we sure this is a ship's railing, Craig? Talking to Craig Tester. And Craig says, no, that has not been determined just yet. Interesting. So there are other ideas. All we've ever heard about is ships railing, but they're on to something else. Here's what I have to say to you about this, folks. If indeed we never hear about this piece of wood again that dated from 660 to 770 AD, I can promise you what that means is they found out what it is and it has nothing to do with the treasure hunt or what's going on here. Keep that in mind. Rick says something else that just blew me away here. They ran organic residue tests on the pine tar kiln. This is later on in the show. and um, Or what they thought was a pine tar kiln. And it came up zero. So basically what he's saying is, now there's a lot of reasons why this could be, but you would think that if you're making pine tar a sticky organic substance that lasts, I mean, an incredible amount of time, that it wouldn't come up zero. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't understand why that would be. Anyway, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, and another weird thing about this is that Marty says that the archaeologists um, say pine tar kilns, quote, you just don't find them in the Maritimes, end quote. I got to look that one up. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I, but I mean, I guess the archaeologists would know. Uh, I guess they didn't 
produce pine tar here in the Maritimes. They just brought it from other places, but certainly doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility considering what the uh, surrounding area was like and who was there for many, much of this time that a pine tar kiln would be. Uh, it doesn't seem weird that it would be created there or used there, anything like that. Anyway, the team mentions more than once about how the entire island, more of the island, can be explored. They talk about how Fred Nolan and um, Dan Blankenship would tell them to look beyond just the places that they're used to, being the money pit or the swamp or something, that there's that the rest of the island has things to say as well. So maybe that's something we're going to get into, right? Maybe that's something we're going to start to uh, start to talk about of other parts of the island. Anyway, I'm not going to go through much more of it. A lot of the show was just sort of recapping of the things they found and the normal sort of hyperbole that comes along with them. Um, let me just say it like this. No matter how hard this show here worked like crazy to make 2020 seem like some sort of banner season with incredible finds and a new direction that worked, um, can we really say that it was, in fact, the banner season with incredible finds? We're going to have a season eight review coming up in the next few weeks, um, and you'll be able to you know, hear more about my thoughts on that. I, this seemed to this show seemed to be working very hard to put a positive spin on even the most negative of things. Listen, it ends with a really great cliffhanger. Um, seems almost incredibly <laughs> convenient that such a hit cliffhanger was there. It's just like the ship anomaly, or it's just like uh, you know so many things that were found at the ends of seasons. Here we are at the end of this one when the potential of silver in the money pit is found. And the work that needs to be done. So you get where I'm saying. Uh, this was this was a good wrap up show. There were some really interesting things said here. Some nice insights into what they're really thinking on some of this stuff. Um, and I and I think it's a it was you know it serves as a good wrap up. And I enjoyed watching it. But it really did sort of strike me as I was watch as I was watching it that it was really doing its best to sort of put as positive a possible spin as they could on what was, let's face it, a difficult season for everybody involved. All right, that's going to do it for another episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Shameless plug time. I produce another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions. It's not as regular as this one. Me and my friend Chris Poe, uh, he's a radio host. We've been friends for decades and decades. We like to sit down with a drink or two and talk about pubs, and we talk a lot about music, a little bit about the paranormal. We used to talk a lot about politics, but that's kind of settling down now that there's not an election. Kind of basically anything to guys who uh, really have observed... <laughs> the country and the world for many, many years. Uh, just whatever we would, two guys like that would talk about while sitting at a bar over a drink. Give it a listen. to find it sit-downs and sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual podcast places. Also, if you're enjoying the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, I ask you to please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And a big thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star rating already. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Um, thank you especially for the kind words that you've left in those reviews. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. And again, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. And just keep in mind, if you do so, 
If you do send me an email or a direct message, I may just answer it here on a future podcast. So if you don't want your message read, just please make a note of that for me. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.